0: Hello and welcome to We Go Way Back, the history podcast that looks back in time to better understand today. My name's Kit Heron.
1: I'm Alex Jones. And I'm Tom
2: Martin.
0: And this week, Tom is looking at the collision of two worlds in the 1880s, when a Zulu king from present-day South Africa came to London to plead for the restoration of his throne after a bloody imperial
2: war. This song's called Una Matemba by the Ladysmith Black Mambazo. A Zulu singing group suggested by our guest this week, Dr TJ Talley, a professor of African history at the University of San Diego in California. His research focuses on 19th century British imperial history in South Africa, and we spoke about Sechwayo Kampande, often referred to as the last king of Zululand. But first we must set the context before this story can begin. European colonialists first arrived on the southern tip of Africa in the mid-17th century and for the next 200 years a mixture of Dutch and British colonialists invaded and settled in the region withdrawing huge wealth for their respective governments. Amidst all this was the House of Zulu, a powerful independent African state situated on the eastern coast now in current day northeast South Africa. By the mid-1850s, to the south of the Zulu kingdom, the British held a permanent colonial settlement of their own, called Natal. Now, our story begins in 1878, as the Zulu king, Setshuayu kaMpande navigates an independent kingdom alongside an increasingly aggressive British colonial neighbour. In just a few years, Setshuayu and the British will be at war. And here's where we bring in Dr Talley. Please, explain how this happened.
3: So... One of the things that happens is that geopolitically, multiple things change. First, when the British acquired the Transvaal, the South African Republic in 1877, that borders Zululand to the north. Natal borders Zululand to the south and west. And uh, the Indian Ocean borders Zululand to the east. So there's not really much place for them to go. And in this moment, there really does seem to be an imperial logic of, we need to sort of deal with this problem now right? The Zulu people become this problem. And the Natal settler government has always believed that Zulu people are a threat, that they need to be eliminated, that they sort of need to be pacified and and conquered and dominated so that, and also very cynically, so that white settlers can expand land rights and farming and other things into this region. Mm. The larger imperial issue is how do we sort of dismantle the Zulu state without causing a full-blown uprising. Natal settler government continues to agitate and say that Zulu people are not respecting their borders and their boundaries. And the final moment comes when some women, who, some Zulu women who were engaged to be married to men in Hachwayo's military, um, senior men, and these were younger women, and they were gonna be forcibly married, right? So they flee across the Tukela River and they flee into Natal, and they seek sort of asylum. However, uh, these men, right, who were supposed to be married, some of them cross the Chiquela River, forcibly abduct these women, bring them back, and then they are executed for treason, for violating the laws of the king. And this is the perfect sort of casus belli for this claim. The British then, in December of 1878, set forth an ultimatum to Tichwaiu. They say, you must, offer, you must give us these men, so that we can administer punishment, you must dismantle your military, and you must allow us to come in and inspect. This is impossible for that trial. A trial would be unable to maintain his own military power, or actually autonomy, or control, or even the respect of his uh, of, of his subordinates, if he agreed to all of these things. And so he doesn't respond. But the whole point was that the ultimatum was never meant to be actually addressed right it was always meant as a precursor to war which is why it is sent in December with a deadline on January 1st 1879 which then results right as as there is no proper response as intended in January of 1879 war breaks out so by
2: January 1879 war is upon us how does it first happen where does the first violence exist
3: so the British with supreme confidence as really truly only the head of a 19th century vast empire can do, right? Just march grandly with, with absolute confidence across the borders of the Tukela into Zululand, thinking this will be a quick sort of decisive war. They, we have automatic weapons. We have um, so much, you know, cutting edge technology. Who are these people? They have spears. We've endured savagery for too long. We've fought others like them all over the world, blah, 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 blah. Right. Of course, this will lead to the first major engagement of the war three weeks in, um, which is the Battle of Isandlwana. And for those of you who are nineteenth-century military people, of which an astonishing number of people I've met are, um, this will this will register. Isandlwana ends up being one of the greatest military defeats in British imperial history. Um, what happens is they don't scout ahead, they don't check and see how many troops are being mustered or moved, and they plunge headlong into the territory, and it is a absolute rout. It is humiliating. It is, in the 19th century, one of the most significant defeats. But of course, in so doing, it made things substantially worse for the Zulu people because there's no way that the British government can stand for this. So what happens is this defeat is so egregious, is so humiliating, is so awful, that there's no chance but for them to respond twice as hard in pursuit of national honor. So the whole of the war lasts from about January 1st to mid-September 1879, with one epic Zulu victory and then a series of increasing defeats and final conquest in uh, September of 1879.
2: Correct me if I'm wrong, but this leads to the imprisonment of Sechwayo and ultimately he finds himself uh, locked up for a
3: couple of years. Exactly, right. He is in prison at a farm called Old Mullen in the Western Cape, near Cape Town. Um, And really that what happens is not unlike the American invasion and occupation of Iraq post 2003. There's this moment of, you've invaded something, But the whole point was that you weren't supposed to hold on to it. You were actually supposed to, like, it was about protecting and liberating people. And so now you're left with this huge mess, right? You're like, I, but I don't, I don't want it. We don't, we don't want to hold it, right? And so there was this sense of how do we reconstruct this, which is sort of a recipe for disaster, which will, of course, only help that trial's cause, right? What will happen is that as he's imprisoned, he he does have a significant number of high-placed friends throughout um, sort of British imperial circles, including Lady Florence Dixie or um, other authors who are all sort of advocating for him. And they say, look, this is a mess. They've made it worse. And he was the center of, of authority. And so as he is sitting in prison in between 1879 and 1881, some significant things happen. One, Zululand gets messy. Two, the British lose their hold on the Transvaal. The Afrikaners are annoyed by constant British demands for taxes, and they they have a revolt. And starting with the Battle of Majuba Hill, um, the British are defeated, and in 1881, are forced to withdraw from the Transvaal. But on top of that, what happens while H.Y.O is imprisoned is that we have the infamous Midlothian campaign in Britain, and we have the, the defeat of Disraeli and the conservatives, and the success of William Gladstone. And Gladstone's um, electoral success marked a shift into a smaller empire phase. And so there is now a political moment starting in 1881 where the British government might be open to some sort of face-saving measure. And so the world changes drastically between 1879 and 1881. And that leaves things very fertile and open for a canny Zulu man and monarch to make his way to London.
2: Ultimately, Prime Minister William Gladstone bows to the pressure and invites Sechwayo to London for a three-week visit to negotiate the future of the Zulu Kingdom. So, it's 1882 and after what would have been a perilous journey at the time Sechwayo steps off the boat at Southampton to an electric media response. Understanding the atmosphere in the UK at the time is central to Dr. Talley's research.
3: Now, tensions were high, right? We can talk about, obviously, Victorian Britain is a place of extraordinary, what we would now in the 21st century see as racial chauvinism, right? This sense of deep white supremacist imperialism. But also, London is a profoundly multicultural city. People would have been excited to see Tchwayo as an exotic object, but at the same time, he would have been in a recognizable category. So in this way, he would have been something novel, but a novelty that they would also have a category mentally to deal with. Because there were always, you know, exalted peoples from other parts of the world moving through, right? And this is something, from the late 18th century, but increasingly after 1850, we see in London. London is a space where you would have a a chief from a significant uh, First Nations group in Ontario coming through, and then the next week, a Maori representative. And so what we have, interestingly enough, is a London that is aware of its imperial space, one that is deeply steeped in imperial racism, but also one that then as now, is fully aware of class distinctions and hierarchies, and very welcoming to the idea of upper class visitors, right? And so, one of the fascinating things that Clitchoyle will find as he steps off the docks in Southampton in August of 1882, it got to be multiple things at once. He is an exotic, foreign, fancy curiosity. He wants to. He is a noble savage in some people's minds. He is all that is wrong with imperial policy, and from one monarchy to another, he is an august sovereign that we have to think about how to treat. And that was one of the things that fascinated me when I was doing research, was how frequently that register moved between backward savage and fellow sovereign. And it would sometimes happen in the same article, right? Because there is a space in which Imperial Britain, ruled by this sort of particular monarchical family, has this level of respect or appreciation for pomp, and circumstance and a very particular type of royal presentation. And Tatuayo can eat that up. It is a delicate balancing act for him. Throughout the 19th century, they've already had visitors like Sarah Bartman, you know, infamously known as the Hottentot Venus, right? An African woman who was displayed in London in the 1810s. By the 1850s, a variety of Zulu performers that um, Charles Dickens infamously writes about in 1853 with disgust and disdain. So people were ready. And in addition, they were ready to see and glimpse this famous personage. And the geopolitical stakes could not be higher for Tchwayo, and the interest could not be higher on the side of the British public.
2: Your research has focused specifically on the media coverage. Please talk to me a bit about this. and Some of the imagery that that came alongside his visit, it's astounding, the stuff I've seen.
3: I love it. So yes, absolutely. And so I think there's something very fun as someone in the 21st century thinking about a late 19th century um, media sensation, right? A a sort of almost pop culture darling, right? And so what happens is that the press cannot get enough of that trial in the three weeks that he's here. They write about him constantly, what he's wearing, what he's speaking, how he comports himself. And of course, some of these descriptions that then they match in terms of his outfits and his clothing, are fascinating, right? They are just absolutely fascinating. So what we have is a similar number of caricatures and portraits. One my personal favorite, and I know we want to talk about this a bit, is that um, that you have Alexander Bassano takes this amazing photograph of Chwayo while he's in London. And what you have is Chwayo, who was a physically imposing man. He was over six foot three. He was extraordinarily large. Very close cropped hair. He's got a traditional Zulu head ring, marking his authority. So it is a a it goes all the way around his head. It is it is and it is the only um, customary thing about him. Otherwise, he is in a fitted suit. It is a double breasted suit. He looks dapper, um, and he is staring off into the distance. The lighting is soft on him. He looks elegant. He looks romantic, and at the same time, he is this image of a modern sovereign. It is a masterful PR photograph, right? It is in this suit. He is the representation of the class that people could respect. They see him as an elite monarch, but with the head ring, the Isiktohto, he also looks the part of exotic. This is not unique to Te This is something that will be cultivated in, in people like the Hawaiian Royal Family who are also doing this, other groups as they are trying to perform sovereignty but explicitly as this figure people can't get enough of him something that I was really
2: interested in reading about this is the extent to which all this all these varieties of representation of him and the way he was written about and also the imagery that was chosen did it go as far as to disrupt some really traditional
3: forms of white supremacy and shake it up I don't know if it shook up the white supremacy. One of the more cynical things that I would say is that it almost demonstrates a particular British appreciation for class in its relationship to race, right? So there is a moment where we see, there are, there are drawings where Tetchwayo was depicted almost as a sort of 19th century minstrel figure with exaggerated lips and the very sort of what you would see in sort of American Southern drawings, but, forcing him to be drawn as an equal or an equivalent does cut at or challenge predominant white supremacist notions. But I would argue the vehicle by the way that the vehicle by which this is done is by emphasizing his class. So white supremacy is replaced with like a, the heavy
2: class option, and therefore he's accepted because he's in a double-breasted suit.
3: Right. And I would say almost like his exceptionalism, Right doesn't necessarily negate white supremacy. It marks him as an exception, but that wouldn't bother Atwio, at right? Because that's his goal. Atwio at wouldn't have been interested in sort of making a larger Pan African claim for freedom or really trying to even dismantle racism. Atwio at wanted his kingdom back.
2: And let's switch back to his perspective. I think it, it's right, and he he achieved his goal. Correct?
3: Yeah. This is what, one of the things that makes this story unique and fascinating, is that you have a Zulu monarch who comes to London, who successfully petitions the crown in a moment of imperial transition and offers them a way out that where they can look magnanimous. They can take a step back from some, something slightly costly and ruinous and then almost look like they are being charitable. He has no problem with that because what he wants is his throne. And so it is within three weeks, he goes on a charm offensive, and delights, um, by all reports, delights the queen, um, delights the prime minister, um, and really plays up this, I am a monarch, you are a monarch, how can we respect each other? And yes, so he is promised that in 1883, he will be restored to his kingdom, which of course, as we can talk about, does not get all of his kingdom, but the fact that he is restored at all is unprecedented in sort of the 19th century.
2: So the three weeks are up, and he is heading back to the southeastern corner of the African continent to his home, Zululand, and he is reinstated as the king. But it, it doesn't last long. Uh, what happens between then and the end of the century?
3: Oh, so yeah, it is one of those moments where if we just get to stay in 1882. What a fantastic, transformative moment that is. But then of course, 1883 has to come, right? And so that's why he does. He returns. He's only granted one-third of his former kingdom. In the, th- in the four years since he's been gone, other rivals have set up other types of authority. Right? Other rivals are trying to trying to claim, other members, distant members of the royal family are claiming that they should be in charge. And the minute that he arrives, the British withdraw, and a civil war breaks out in 1883. He is challenged by a distant relative named Uzibepu, and Enzibepu, um, is very successful in sort of attacking Tchwayo, who f- has to flee um, to the outer reaches of what would have been traditionally his kingdom, where he dies um, in a forest in 1884. Um, and a cycle continues in a very particular way. His son, Dinizulu, Chwayo, will then negotiate with the Afrikaners and will enlist their support and for his own temporary success, right, against against this leader, but... The British step in, seeing increasing disorder, and in 1887 annex Zululand as a, as formally as a territory. And finally, ten years later, uh, in 1897, what Natal settlers have hoped come to pass, right, it was in 1897 the British government amalgamates both colonies. Um, so in 1897, Zululand and Natal just amalgamate as Natal, and Natal, as this white minority-dominated space, will become. Uh, part of one of the four constituent territories of the Union of South Africa. However, after the fall of apartheid in 1994, what we will have is the formal recognition of this space. And so the colony and then the province of Natal is renamed to KwaZulu-Natal, which it is today. And so there is something very fitting that that Chwayo's region, right, ends up becoming this territory of KwaZulu-Natal. And I I do think that on some levels it takes a hundred years for that that transformation to happen. But I find him to be a particularly fitting and fascinating figure. And as someone who teaches African history regularly, I like to look at this not as just a moment of British magnanimity um, or press play, but really a moment of a man who was able to successfully perform and move through spaces that were not easy for him and actually get his goals, which nobody expected to happen. And so I find that deeply impressive and inspiring.
2: I do too. So thank you so much for uh, joining me and telling me about it. And yeah, I hope to chat to you again soon when I come across a topic that you're also
3: researching. I would love nothing more. This has been a delight.
1: Tom, absolutely love that. thought that was fascinating. I think we might as well jump in with what seems to me to be the big question out of that, which is, to what extent do you think we as people are more classist than we are racist? Because that whole, the whole story of Setsueo seems to, seems to suggest that might be the case. What do you guys think?
3: I,
0: I feel like, because it, it obviously came up in your interview, Tom, and I, I kind of feel like white supremacy... May not be the most like effective prison to look at the whole episode through, especially like when he was in London because obviously as as um, the interviewee brought up, uh, he was kind of fated and something of a celebrity um, when he when he was in in Britain um, you know obviously loads of people over here were highly critical of the South African war, um, and it wasn 't seen as far as I know as kind of the kind of the most popular um, part of, of what was going on with the empire uh, and kind of building on, on what TJ said I think class is definitely a more effective prison to view the episode through than race and it I kind of it seems to me that racism the the kind of racism that we see now is more of a legacy of uh, what happened in the 50s and 60s as um, the empire was coming to an end and you know people were coming from the imperial periphery to the centre Um, in a kind of mass migration kind of way. Um, And I think it's a kind of whole different kettle of fish in the 1880s when this episode took place. I don't know what you guys think.
1: And then just to add a little sort of a joinder onto that, I was reading about Frederick Douglass, who was the famous anti-slavery campaigner in the US, and his experience seemed to be quite similar to that. Um, And that's because he sort of dressed and behaved like an upper-class you know, quotation mark, civilized person. Um, And it seems to be quite a widely felt experience. So that suggests to me that it's like a fear of the other or other classes or other cultures, as opposed to different skin colors per se. Although, of course, that did play a part.
2: Yeah, I think what we as, uh, I guess, small time uk historians to some extent because we do a british pod, a podcast for a british audience and its history so i guess i can call ourselves that um i keep we keep coming across this class as this like um, horrendously like baked in thing into the british uh psyche and actually do you know it's reminded me of what you just said kit there at the top which was really really interesting and spot on i think is my uh, the last episode i did which was about um uh, Joseph Zaya uh, speaking to the host of the bad gays podcast and when I was researching that podcast we I was listening to their episode on the Kray twins um, and it was really interesting the way in which the Krays accessed um, a certain class by behaving a certain way and then once they were in that class they were able to behave horrendously to their young male subjects um, and you're right my question to Professor Talley in this uh, in this episode, where I said, so did uh, did his visit uh, like sh- um, shake up the white supremacist ideology of British people? And he was like, mm, meh, maybe. But what it did do is just showed how like class was the ticket. And I I I, I um, urge you all to to Google this photo of um, Setchwyer in a double breasted suit, looking gazing like out of shot. It's a photo that was taken on his visit. And it like it 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 explains this class dynamic in in a photo. It's brilliant,
0: and it's that's, that's great. And I think it's it's very interesting the whole class race dynamic is something we go back to often, uh, and I think it's just incredibly interesting. And it it seems to me that um, at the moment, looking at the present day and, and kind of the discourse around um, liberation and and struggle, um, it seemed to be kind of mostly centered on, on a kind of racial and ethnic experience, um, versus, um, you know, versus a class one. Um, and I think that can be kind of quite, um, an easy way out for some people because a lot of what it requires is representation. That's not to say there's not a huge amount of oppression of, of, of non-white people, but, but remedying it in some ways seems an easier task. Um, and it seems like something that you can kind of throw throw a bone out and say, oh, hey, like you know, look at all look at all the the amount of um, of non-white people that we have in films now. Isn't this so great? Aren't we making so much progress? When actually, you know, things like income inequality, which also hugely affects non-white people um, disproportionately, in fact, um, is actually becoming more of a problem.
1: And I think yeah. it's definitely safe to say that it's more acceptable to be classist than it is to be racist. I think you'd get away with saying a a working class slur more than you would, of course, saying a racial slur. And it's just a very strange place that we've gotten to where that's the case.
2: Mm. Um, Yeah, I agree that it's frustrating in a way because you want to talk about one and not the other or, and trying to like cure them, but um, I'm afraid they are totally in sync. Um, And yeah, I think that if, when looking at the the episode to, that this week's episode, um, this profile of Setuayo, you and try to see what, what what that tells us about today. It um, it is that it is that um, it is that class ticket into some sort of acceptability that I'm, I'm afraid Britain still abides by.
0: Yeah, totally. And you can see that with the Commonwealth, right? Like you can see how um, the Queen is pretty much like most at home. I think when you see her with other heads of state of fellow Commonwealth countries. There's no question of racism. It's, it's, she, she loves it. She loves being kind of the head of this kind of imperial legacy that is the Commonwealth. Um, And, and you can see that she views these people as kind of as equals. Um, So I think Setsuo is kind of like the forerunner of that, or he's one of the forerunners of that.
2: Um, What did you both think about the way in which uh, Professor Talley tied up our interview and drew it towards the present day and the way in which apartheid um, followed and then when apartheid fell uh, there was this sort of recognition of the state of KwaZulu I mean it was quite like a a neat way to tie it up and I could tell that he was quite emotional talking about it in this sort of like 100 year history Um, to me what I learned I was just like I was just first of all 1880 suddenly felt like 2018 it was like oh my god history is so short you know like that what's happening today or is still an impact of the decisions British uh, colonists made in the 1880s. Uh, and, it, and, that's, and that was a really valuable lesson for me.
1: And it's kind of disconcerting because these decisions seem to be quite arbitrary. I mean, just because he had the cunning to sort of rock up in a suit and it made a huge difference to the course of history, it's just like, you know, this sort of takes you out of yourself for a second, doesn't it really?
0: I think the other thing is that, um, I don't know if it did actually make that much difference at at the end of the day you know um we can overstate that because obviously what was brought up in the interview was that he came to London he made this big impression you know he got on really well with everyone he wore his suit but then you know he got back to um his homeland and, and basically within what was it a couple of years he was dead so um so it's kind of I don't know I don't know what that says but uh, I, I suppose you can you can put too much emphasis on these big moments, maybe.
1: Yes, and maybe put too much emphasis on fascinating personal narratives and trying to look at everything as, I think, what academics call it as great man theory, of looking at everything through the lens of the actions of great men. Just because it's really comfortable and easy, it's easy to tell the story of one person rather than various contributing factors, um, mm. which is why I think we latch on to things like this. But perhaps actually, as you were both just saying, it didn't make as much of a difference um, as perhaps we'd like to believe.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah, agreed. I mean, the reason I was attracted to the episode or the story in general is because of that sort of like, I don't know what you just called it, Alex. That's a great man theory. In some sense, I was just suddenly in awe of this like narrative. It was just like it just jumped off the page at me immediately. Um, and it was also an opportunity, I think, to tell like a colonial story. Uh, in a different way. So um, I hope it did that.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating to see those, like I said at the, at the beginning of this episode, it's fascinating to see those worlds collide, really. Um, anyway, uh, I think that's probably all we've got time for this week. Thanks very much for listening. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Cheers.
1: Cheers. Cheers.